0: It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jodlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. It is 2024. And we are so excited to welcome everybody to a new year and a new episode of Goat Gab. And as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren Hughes from Cold and Snowy Dawn, Missouri.
1: And I am your other co-host, Cameron Jodlowski, coming to you live from western Minnesota. uh, But I do call snowy Wisconsin my uh, humble abode here. And this week... We are joined by special guest, a uh, yearly delight, as we'll call it here, Mr. Craig Copeman. Hi, Craig.
2: Hello. I'll be your regular January visitor again. (laughs) We love that.
1: Craig, for the listeners that are unaware of who you are or what you do, um, uh, why don't you reintroduce yourself? Tell
2: us about your farm a little bit and the listeners a little about you. All right. Well, Craig Coltman, I own and operate Pleasant Grove Dairy Goats. Um, I have had goats for, I don't know, I've lost track, 36, 38 years now, something like that. Um, I think it's 38. I, I became an ADGA member in 1986, so it's been a while. Um Started with a couple goats, 4-H project. It quickly advanced to a commercial dairy. And since 1988, when I started chipping milk commercially, it's been a combination commercial herd and show herd. And that's important because it's a little bit about what we're going to talk about later tonight, I think. But I've been showing and running the commercial dairy since 1988. for the first few years, I milked probably around 100 head and, let's see, six, going on seven years now. Um, I, my brother and I combined our herds and we now milk 300 head as one herd, commercial herd, all registered. And we also do a bunch of showing. I show all around the country. I try to get to the national show every year if possible. Um, I've done quite well. I've had my share of champions. I've had national champion. I've had junior champion in multiple breeds. So I've been around, been in it a long time. Craig, you have known me my whole life, correct? Yes. (laughs) I met your dad before you were born, so I've known you since then.
1: (laughs) Growing up, I was always that annoying kid that um, really, really uh, annoyed Craig Maybe ate a sandwich or two out of his cooler at a goat show or not. Um, but I I always found Craig's goats fascinating growing up.
0: Craig, did you put him to work
2: when he was a kid? Not really. I don't think so. He was just kind of that annoying little kid, but he obviously soaked it in and took in a lot of information and retained it because he's learned a lot, both from his dad and from me and other breeders. And he's now become a top breeder himself. So he's obviously was paying attention, even though he was being that annoying little kid. <laughs> well, well,
1: thanks, Craig. I, I appreciate the, the the high, the kind regards, and someday I'll I'll uh, be able to chase you around the show ring here. Um, uh, but it won't be with my alpines probably anytime soon. But we'll talk about that at a later time. Uh, <laughs> um, me and my me and my me and my four Alpines. But nonetheless, let's talk a little bit about what's happening on our farms. Laura, how are your goats liking the snow?
0: Uh, You know, it kind of surprised me. Alpines are so different from Nubians. You know, when I back when I had Nubians, if it started to snow or rain and they saw like a flake or a drop, they wouldn't set foot outside for anything. And and I just love it. These Alpines, they just go out in the snow and dig around and Uh, eat hay and walk out to the water thing and kind of mess around outside and it doesn't seem to faze them too much then they go back in the barn and warm up and yeah it's they don't they don't mind it a bit so I kind of like that it's fun to fun to look outside and see see the coming yearlings out there eating hay out of their little hay feeder and yeah, it's, it's fine. I'm not looking forward to the frigid, frigid weather that's supposed to come in the next week. So um, uh, snow never bothers me, but it's those those below zero with wind chill and ice that I'm just not really excited about. But um, we moved the kids into a bigger pin this past week, and they seem to like that a little bit better. And um, I didn't combine my kids with my yearlings like we usually do. And I have enough of them that are kind of pregnant at this point to the point that I don't think it'd be a wise thing to move them. Um, You guys ever run into that issue of combining animals and herds and realize you probably waited too late to do that?
1: Yes. Um, I'm a little worried about making that move, as I'll call it there, um, because I know I need to clean out the one pen to make room for the 2024 babies and I need to move the 2023 babies into the quote yearling pen. So a little concerned about that, but I mean I can only have so much space, so
0: I gotta do what I gotta do. Craig, when do your does like when do you start combining age groups?
2: I combine them when they freshen. The day they freshen they go from the yearling pregnant coming yearling yard to the treated yard. They're there for a couple of days as soon as their milk's good to go in the tank. They go right in with the milking herd that's milking. Um And I find that's the best way to train them to the parlor and the routine of being milked is just dumping them right in with the mature does. Um, Now it's I have a little advantage because I'm freshening a lot of yearlings and I have a large herd, so it's not like I'm dumping one doe, one yearling in with five or ten other mature does. I'm typically putting four or five does every day, adding them to the mature does, so it's a mix of mature does and yearlings and So they learn the routine with the parlor and everything. and But while they're dry, all the young stock, before they freshen, they stay only with young stock. They're never put with older does, mature does, until they freshen.
0: I can imagine that the peer pressure really does help them to learn the routine of, you know, okay, this is when we go to get milked and this is where you go. And uh, nope, it's my turn. Don't step in to my point in the line and and all that. but. Um, I could, I could see that. Cool. And I can also see that it's good to have more than one because you know, she'll, she'd get picked on otherwise.
2: Oh, definitely. You put one doe in with a new group and they just, they pick on them ferociously. It's, I do that. I don't move does around a lot. I try to minimize the adding new does to new pens or whatever but anytime i do if i got to add a dough to a pen it's minimum two getting added at the same time so that way at least if they're want to pick on the new dough the majority of what's in that pen has to split their attention among at least two does and i try to put more in if possible but at minimum two i never put a single new dough into a pen of does it's always multiple animals
0: Craig, do you notice more of a problem with one breed over another?
2: No, not really. Um, I would say the Alpines are probably a little bit more aggressive in wanting to re reestablish the herd dominance or within that pen, I guess. The Sonnens, in general, are less concerned about it, but not a whole lot of difference. You'll see some Sonans are they're going to pick on the new goat.
0: I just wondered. Yeah, so that's that's where I am. Craig, what's new with you?
2: Well, talking about as we're talking about moving does and introducing them to their combining different ages and such. We actually spent all day yesterday moving around, moving our yearlings. We're fortunate. All our mature does are kept under one roof. They're in pens under shed all the time. They don't go outside. Exposed to the weather and we always try to time it This time of year sometime around the beginning of January before the first big snow hits where we bring all the young stock up Into the main barn. We clear out a section of hay and keep a separate pen for the yearlings to go into We spent all day yesterday moving the hay around and setting up the pen getting the yearlings moved up there and it's good because now we everything's under one roof And we don't have to deal with the weather when we're dealing with the animals, feeding, moving, anything we're doing with them. So it's nice to have that done because we just got hit with 12 or more inches of snow today. And they're talking 20 to 30 mile an hour winds with 40 mile an hour gusts today and tomorrow. So it's nice to have them all inside under one roof. So, And then beyond all that preparation yesterday, the last week or so, we've started getting ready for kidding. Um, we start kidding. The 25th of January, our first doe is due, and we've got 115 total due before the end of January. So it's going to get crazy in a hurry. We've been getting the sheds ready, cleaning out and sanitizing all the kids' shed, the nursery, so to speak. Getting it all sanitized and ready to go, so we're actually a little ahead of schedule. Usually, we're trying to get that all done the last week before freshening starts, but we're a little ahead this year, so that's a good feeling. And now it's just kind of sit and wait and prepare for kidding season to start in about two weeks.
0: Craig, hey. I just want, I want to make sure I heard what you said correctly. Between the twenty fifth of January and the thirty first, so that's six days. You have how many does due?
2: I have 115 does due in those six days. And just to shock you a little worse, 100 of those 115 are due in three days. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh,
0: my gosh. So so you have stocked up on um, Death Wish coffee and no-dos and maybe some meth or something like that to keep you going. I don't don't know. How how are you going to do that?
2: mountain dew and I don't sleep for a week.
0: Oh my god. Oh my
2: god. That's the secret.
0: Wow. I will never complain about being busy ever. Uh Craig, I want to can you
1: hear um could I want to circle back here Craig on a question or something you said where you talk about dumping the milk. How do you do that in your parlor uh where your uh bulk tank is connected to your milk system? Like how do you dump individual
2: goats milk? We keep Treated does, as we call them, in a separate pen. Um, the way our barn is set up, we parlor holds thirty-two heads, so we generally keep thirty-two goats in a pen. When we're freshening, we keep one pen is dedicated for fresh does, and because we dry treat the majority of our does, we have to dump the milk for three to four days after they freshen and. We test all the milk for antibiotics before a fresh goat goes in the tank. All those fresh does go in a separate pen. So when we milk, we milk all the does that the milk is good. Their milk can go in the tank. We milk all them. We flush the line. We take the pipeline out of the bulk tank so that there's no chance of treated milk going in. And then then we'll go out and get the does out of the treated yard and bring them in and milk them then. So all the treated doughs are kept separate. They're not being milked at the same time or in line with the rest of the doughs. They're in a separate pen and milk completely separate. So that's how that's done. So do you have like a portable milk machine that you use to just milk
1: those or like, how does it work with like the, obviously the milk machine being connected to the tank? I'm just curious on the logistics side of it.
2: Okay. It's, It's hard to understand without having a visual in front of you, but we milk with a pipeline system. So you put the the milk around the dough, and the milk goes into the pipeline. It gravity flows into the milk house, into what we call a receiver jar, and it's basically a five-gallon jar, and it's got a sensor on it. When it gets so full, there's a pump on it, and it flushes it through the line into the bulk tank. So when we are done milking, we run all the milk out into the bulk tank. We flush a little bit of water through the line to rinse it out, and then we take the pipe out of the bulk tank, disconnect the pipeline from the bulk tank, so to speak, so that the pipeline is now dumping into the sink. So that way it's no longer dumping into the bulk tank. It's dumping into the sink, which just goes down a drain, and out to the sewer system. So we disconnected from the bulk tank and set it up into the sink, just like if we we're gonna wash the whole system, it's set up that way. And then we will milk the treated dose. So all their milk is getting run into the sink and then down the drain. But we can also, if we need that milk for something, occasionally we have people wanna buy a colostrum from us. And to save that, we can pull milk out of the bottom of the receiver jar But generally, any treated dough, any fresh dough with colostrum, we're just milking them same as we would anything else with the milker in the pipeline, but it's coming into the milk house and it's going, just going through the whole pipeline and down the drain rather than into the bulk tank. So I hope that answers the question. It's not a separate individual milker or anything. It's simply, we get done milking the good doughs, we flush the line, we disconnect the line from the bulk tank, and then we milk the treated doughs and the milk gets run down the drain.
1: No, that makes that makes sense. Thank you for explaining because I have often thought about how people do that with treated doughs and all sorts of stuff, and I'd hate for you to use another uh, milker. I just imagine you with a portable milk machine around and just milking all 32 of these doughs there in your parlor.
2: No, they all get milked at once right in the pipeline, and that's another one of the benefits. People think I'm nuts freshening so many in such a short period of time. This is another side benefit. All the does are treated at the same time, so it's easier to milk them like that and then dump the treated milk down the drain and flush the line. You get later in the year, if I happen to have a treated dough that's treated for mastitis or something, we will mark, mark those does up, knock on wood, it rarely happens, but we will mark, mark those up does up, with livestock paint on the rump and on the udder so we know they're treated and their milk's got to be dumped. And because it's rarely ever more than one doe, we'll just milk that doe by hand when she comes in the parlor. And because she's all painted up, we know who she is, and it's just milking one doe by hand. So, Gotcha. That
1: makes, that makes sense there on that. That is very interesting. Thank you for explaining that.
0: So, Cameron, you have anything going on with you? You have a little bit more of a break before babies come.
1: Yeah, we're still sitting on about a month of milkcation. We're going to take another vacation here. We just got back from Mexico um, with the president of the American Dairy Goat Association, big, big uh, uh, Dr. President Edzitlowski. We go to Mexico, so we came back from that. And boy, oh boy, am I thankful for my chore help. They are so great to work with. They're so easy. They understand the goats. They text me when there's goats in heat. Yes, I did say goats in heat. Yes, we are still actively trying to breed one uh, goat. Uh, that's my wife's project, not mine. I'm not dealing with that. That's her problem, not mine. Um, that's why she is a reproductive veterinarian. And I am yeah, not.
0: but Karen, your yeah. wife, your problem.
1: No, 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 no. It's it's not my. It's, nope. It's a Toggenburg. Okay. It's a Toggenburg. It's not my problem. The 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 two destructive alpines. The one is going to science. The other one is going to meat. So like I'm not worried about it. Like like I'm I'm done I'm done worrying about my problems of breeding goats right now. They're my wife's problem. So uh, in addition to that, I spent a good chunk of change and bought fifteen thousand pounds of hay. Generally, don't like to buy hay in pounds, but that's how my hay guy that I like to buy hay from um, sells it. So, again, it's I have 30 goats, I bought 15,000 pounds of hay. You can quickly do the math if you would like on how much uh, hay per goat I got. Um, however, I will not because that makes me sad.
2: I'll make you feel a little bit better, Cameron. That fifteen thousand pounds of hay you bought dwarfs compared yeah. to the six semi loads of hay I bought last summer to get me through the winter. So, so how many pounds? I'm curious, Craig. Um, I'll let you do the math, but it was about about a hundred and twenty tons. So, hundred twenty times two thousand, two hundred forty thousand pounds. Is that the right math?
1: Yep. Yep. Yep.
2: God.
1: Wow. So for the listeners out there, I just did it on my iPhone. It's 1.4 million pounds of hay. And Craig, how long will that last you?
2: Um We go through about 250 ton of hay a year. Okay. I don't know. You got to do the math on that. I don't deal with pounds on hay. I deal with tons.
0: You know, that's, this it, is very right. quickly turning into goat depression here. I mean yeah. talk about the worst kind of goat math to do is figuring up how quickly you go through hay. <laughs> you
1: go you go through half a you it says according to this Matthew, you go through half a million pounds of hay a year.
2: Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I don't no. know. Sounds like a lot, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Cameron, I'm, what's something happy? I know you have something happy to share.
1: Oh, what? Uh, oh, I, I did a thing. Okay, so I did a thing. I'm not telling anybody. I did a thing, and I spent a lot of money, and I got a new purchase coming, and it's going to be here in, like, April, and I'm so excited for it. That's, all, that's, my, that's my other thing there.
0: You're not going to tell us what it is?
1: No, it's coming, though, Laura. It's coming, Laura. And Does it have
0: four legs?
1: No, it's a lot more expensive than four legs.
2: Probably got four tires and a gooseneck on it. That's my guess.
1: Yes, Craig, you are right. I went and bought to put a down payment on a trailer.
0: <laughs> I kind of think I knew that, too. <laughs> or like, I mean, I they bought a new that. truck. I know. It's
2: got lots of goats. Obviously, he needs a nice trailer, so only sans <laughs> reason that's what he's buying.
0: <laughs> that sounds like fun. I think that's exciting.
1: Uh, I never want to buy a new trailer again, but I know I'm probably going to have to do it because it's just, we're going to get this one and it's a custom build and I can't wait. Maybe I'll take the listeners for a tour off it on Facebook, kind of like, you know, my cribs on MTV, my trailer um, there on that. But we we're really excited for it. And this thing was designed for goats and long hauling. And I can't wait to go to go, go to some goat shows with this. So, that's so, why um,
0: exciting. So, East Coast and West Coast Nationals, here you come. East Coast, West
1: Coast, baby. we go going maybe Mr. Worldwide over here.
0: Sounds <laughs> <That's> awesome. awesome. <laughs> Cameron, do we have any Avga news that we want to spill oh, before man. we get on to our amazing topic?
1: No, let's let's skip Adgan news for today because there's really not that much going on uh, minus the buck rule but we can talk about that some later time because that's not going to affect people until 2025 literally. Um and we'll talk about that on a later episode. But let's talk about Craig and catching up with the Copeman as I uh called this episode here catching up with Craig, catching up with the catch up catching up with Coop as I've called it here. <laughs> Uh, Craig, I like to start every episode with a very simple question for you. In, 2020, yes, in 2024, what is the current outlook for the commercial dairy goat producer?
2: I think it's a very strong outlook, um, from my viewpoint anyway. Milk price is strong little over a year ago we got a significant bump increase in our milk price and as far as i know they've held it the same this year but it's a strong milk price we can make money at that milk price and there's still a strong demand for cheese as far as i know the cheese plant is running basically 24 7 all week long they've got the employees there seven days a week running three shifts. I think every day but Sunday. So, as far as I know, it's a strong outlook, both for the milk price on the producer's end and the cheese demand is there. So, obviously, the plant's going to continue to want our milk.
0: Oh, that's exciting.
1: Yes, it is there in that. So, since I've moved to Wisconsin, I've gotten a little bit more akin to the rumors and what's happening in the commercial world there. So, Um, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what trends are you seeing from commercial dairy goat producers, um, in 2000, if you saw them in 2023 and you think you're going to see them in 2024 as well?
2: Um, I know the one trend I'm seeing, I don't know if this holds true in Wisconsin or not, but commercial herds in Iowa, a lot of the commercial herds are Amish dairymen. And the trend I'm seeing is the Amish are getting a lot more serious about the health of the animals and more specifically disease testing and with CAE and even CL. There's a lot of those Amish producers are trying to go CAE negative and abscess free. And you're seeing it in the market. There's a stronger market now the last year, and it looks like going continuing into 24 that, Tested CA negative animals or from herds that are tested negative are much more valuable to the Amish producers than herds that are not tested or unknown status. So that's the trend I see is more health concern and focus for the Amish. And I think they're seeing a benefit of better production, better longevity because of the more, greater focus on health and testing so you, I think that's the biggest trend I'm seeing right now at least in Iowa
1: are you seeing commercial herds getting bigger
2: or staying the same um hard question for me to answer because I'm, I'm I don't really pay attention to the size of the herds I will say I think the number of goats being milked in the upper midwest is Staying pretty steady, maybe a slight increase. Um, I think there's a slight trend towards bigger herds, but not more herds. I think there's more herds added every year, but they're replacing herds that are getting out or selling out for whatever reason, various reasons. But I think there's a slight trend towards bigger herds, and I think that's a push kind of from the cheese plant saputo is a big company started in the cow world and they're still huge in cows bought into the goat world i don't know eight ten years ago and they're all about efficiency so because cows trend towards bigger herds more better efficiency with bigger herds they're Kind of pushing goat producers to be that way. Um, but I can't say it's definite, but I do see it. Just impression I get reading between the lines from what you hear from different people is they'd prefer to do away with the small herds, 50, 7,500 head herds, and they would like to see everybody more in that three to 500 range or even bigger. Wow. I didn't realize oh, that there were some herds
0: that were that small. Do you do you find what's the mix of Amish versus non-Amish dairies in your area, Craig?
2: Say that again, I missed that.
0: No, no, that's okay. Mix of Amish versus non-Amish?
2: Um, in Iowa, I would say the licensed commercial goat dairies, I would guess Probably sixty percent, maybe a few more of them are Amish herds, and maybe only thirty to forty percent are "quote unquote" English, as the Amish would call us.
0: Interesting.
1: Okay, Um, I I do have a question because commercial producers talk about winter milk. When does the winter milk check start? Does it have like a a? Is it like in October? And like when does it end? Like. Will your January fresheners help you get some winter milk checks, or I'm just curious there.
2: Um, I don't have that paper in front of me. I would have to look it up, but I know for sure December and January are the highest base price for the goat milk. I think February is also, and possibly November. So, um, So if it is those four months, because I believe Saputo now has they have a base price for winter and a base price for the rest of the year. It used to be, there was like four time periods with four different base prices. I believe Saputo has now gone to just two. And I think it's November, December, January, February is one base price. And March through October is a lower base price. So November through February is considered winter milk. Um, I do get it because I'm milking full lactations. Um, so I'm getting the high price in November, and I'm also getting the high price in the last week of January and all of February when I'm starting to freshen. So all those fresh does, I get a month of a high price with them freshening then. so And I also milk a group through. Um, started about four years ago, we started milking a group of does through. This year we're milking 65 heads straight through. So we're still milking 65 every day right now. And it works out with the higher milk price through the winter. It justifies milking them, even with the lower production through the winter.
0: So you don't get a a milk vacation?
2: No. No. I used to, and I enjoyed it. But when I joined the commercial herd, when my brother and I joined our herds, then it became almost, I hate to say this, but I almost became bored in the wintertime. Because of how we were splitting up the milkings, I got bored through the winter when we were dried completely up. So, and there was other reasons we went to milk milking some straight through, but it's it keeps me active and keeps me moving. Whereas I used to dry up, we'd dry up right before Christmas. It made the holidays a lot easier, getting all the various family functions. We would dry up right before Christmas and we would have four to five weeks where we were completely dry and not chipping any milk. Um, But now for the last four years we've milked through and it's, it's not a big deal. 65 head. It only takes 45 minutes to milk and feed everything. So it's still, it's not a lot of time out of my day. It's still, the winter months are still pretty easy, relatively speaking.
0: So a semi vacation then. Yes. (laughs) So somebody, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Well, Craig, I was going to ask, have you thought about taking up like a new hobby or something or with with all your spare time that you have milking 65?
2: No, because if you remember, I said I have 100 does fresh in three days. I also <laughs> hibernate in January to prepare for that.
0: <laughs> I can't imagine. Really, I feel like that we should start a GoFundMe or something just to like like make sure that you – get a little bit of sleep and a little bit of food in there. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you do. I know this isn't your first rodeo with this either. So that's, that's just amazing to me.
1: So I, uh, I love talking the commercial game here, but I think we got to get to the goats because I think as much as the listeners like hearing about the commercial world, if they are not commercial dairy producers, I think what people really want to listen to Craig talk about is the herd knowledge that he has and my dying question I have and the first one that came to my mind that I've been waiting to ask for 365 days is how did the Alpines come to outnumber the Saunens based on what I saw in the herd brochure?
2: <coughs> well, it's actually pretty simple. Um, when I started out it was first milking commercially, it was pretty much a 50 50 split. And one of my mentors, Matt Gansmer, lived in Dubuque, less than 20 miles from me, owned the Stardust Herd of Purebred Alpines. And when he decided to retire from the goats and got out, I bought his herd in basically December 96, January of 1997. So I added 37 does from him, bought his herd out. So... Adding those 37 alpines at that time tipped the scales and made the herd, took the herd from basically 50-50 ratio to about two-thirds alpines, one-third sonnen, and it's stayed roughly there ever since. Um, At one point, it seemed like my alpines were really taking over. I even noticed it, and I counted one day, and I was over 80% alpines and only 20% sonnens. And I decided at that point, I'm like, I got to focus a little bit on the Sonnens, bring them back a little bit. So for two years, I kept extra replacements on the saunas, I intentionally did just to try and build them back up a little bit. But it's been hard to do that because it seems like there's, I don't want to say more demand for my and dough kids, but more demand for a higher percentage of them maybe is the right way to say. Because I have fewer of them, so if the demand is the same for saunas and Alpines, I'm selling a greater percentage of my Sonnens, so it's been hard to increase the number numbers on the Sonnens because I have demand for their for the Sonnen kids too. So right now, I'm running basically seventy percent Alpines, thirty percent Sonnens, and I think it's probably going to stay that way. Well, that that makes some sense there, and I've always kind of
1: wondered it as well because. Oftentimes you go to a goat show, you see Pleasant Grove and you do see a, a pretty decent split at some of those club shows there.
2: Yeah, a lot of the shows I go to, it's it's about a 50-50 split on the Sonnens and Alpines that I'm taking. But a lot of that has to do with putting goats in the classes. And the last few years, now that my kids have gotten older and moved on to college and now graduated from college, they're not going to shows with me anymore. I have less help going with me. A lot of times, in fact, I'm by myself or I'm dragging along one nephew and they can't show as well or handle the does as well. So I'm only taking one or two per class and it's the class breakdown. It kind of decides what does I'm taking and that kind of dictates half and half Alpines when I go to a show.
1: I mean, Blake is a great help.
2: And he's he such is. a sweetheart. He's such a cutie. And he is getting better at shows. Um, I don't know if you remember down at your Illinois show last summer, Cameron, but he was down there and I had multiple does in a couple classes and I had him show and somebody took some pictures and a little bit of video of him showing or both of us showing and they sent them to me and I went, holy crap. He's been paying a lot of attention because he is doing a pretty darn good job of showing them. And its I don't see it when I'm showing because, obviously, I'm focusing on the dough I'm showing. But it was nice to see those pictures and a little bit of video. And he's really doing a good job. So its he's always been really good help with haying and graining, doing the stuff back at the pens. But he's taking more of an interest in showing now. And he's obviously soaking it up because he's doing a good job showing them.
1: We'll, We'll get him to Louisville
0: eventually.
2: At some point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Caroline wondered if he, if he might be going this year, so I'll tell her just stay tuned. So I have to see. So Craig, you, I, when I was perusing your Alpine list, there was a very beautiful eye catching doe that you had mentioned that, um, she was from your, like from a commercial line that, um, you know, you you decided that you wanted to bring her, bring her up to the to um, your your show group, and it made me wonder: do you have do you have certain animals that you that you just always keep in commercial, and maybe aren't even registered? Um, or uh, how do you work
2: how do you work that out? Um. Everybody's treated the same. Managed the same. Um, I know the pedigrees on everything. Not all 300 does aren't registered, but if I wanted to, I could register them. I might have to, some of them, I might have to go back two or three generations, register the dam and grand dam, maybe the great grand dam, but I know the pedigree on every single doe in the herd and I could go back and register them if I wanted. Um, So I don't differentiate between commercial does and... Show does or registered does, everything's treated the same. Everything could be registered if I wanted. Um, Some does, there's does that I keep as I keep as kids based on pedigree. They freshen and they don't make the show string, but they milk enough and they're profitable. They're gonna stay there, and I'm gonna milk them, and even if they never get registered, they're going to stay in the herd. And I probably won't keep kids from them. But if I do at some point and they turn out, I can always go back and register that original doe and then register the kid. And I do that sometimes. I've had does where all of a sudden they bloomed at four years old or five years old. And I'm like, whoa, I got to show this doe. And you know this, Cameron, multiple people know this. There's times I all of a sudden show up with a five-year-old at nationals that's never been shown before. I've done it multiple times. So anything can be registered and shown. Um, There's probably 200 of the 300 at any given time are actually registered. I have the physical papers on them. Um, Yearly, and the reason there's oftentimes 100 head not registered is a bunch of them will be yearlings because I tend not to register the does until they freshen as yearlings because it's it gets expensive to register 60 or 80 or 100 kids every year and then they freshen and they don't live up to expectations they're going to milk well enough and be profitable that way but you're never going to you're not going to continue the registration on so I typically wait to register them as year until they're yearlings and fresh, and I can evaluate the udders on them, so that's part of the reason that there's typically a hundred head not registered.
1: Craig, do you want to tell the listeners the story of the 2013 nationals and a and a certain Alpine that you just magically pulled off the trailer?
2: Okay, so 2013, I had my doe signed up for nationals, had my string show string all picked out and everything, and I had appraisal like 10 days before nationals. And I had this doe that I wanted to get appraised. I thought she was pretty nice. I hadn't shown her ever. I hadn't even registered her to this point. She's five years old and I hadn't registered her. But she just, she caught my eye one day as I was walking through the barn. And I'm like, who is that doe? Looked her up and she just, I thought she looked good. So I'm like, I need to get her registered I want to get her appraised. Well, there was a delay in getting the registration papers, and so I didn't get her appraised. I had her all clipped up and everything, ready for appraisal, and appraisal started at 8 a.m. We went through, did our appraisal, took all day, got done with everything, picked up the mail on the way home. Her papers were in the mail, so she didn't get appraised, but I had had her uttered up. For appraisal and I thought clipped up, I thought she looked really good. Well, it just so happened that I had two really nice does in her age bracket, five, six year olds, that were intended to go to nationals. One week before nationals, the one doe hurt her back leg and couldn't go. So I'm like, all right, that five-year-old that I clipped up and wanted to appraise, I liked how she looked. I'm gonna take her to Nationals. That's gonna be my substitution. She had never been led, trained, or anything, so I take her to nationals, and it was kind of funny. We were in the horse stalls, and I had, I think it was 10 horse stalls or 12 horse stalls, and this doe didn't walk very well, wasn't trained at all. It had never been led or anything. Obviously, she's just registered 10 days earlier. Um, So I set up, milked in the one horse stall on the far end of the my row, and I put intentionally put her in the pen on the far end away from the milking so that she had to walk the whole length three times every day to be milked. And it was kind of funny. My pen neighbors across the aisle laughed at me on Sunday and Monday. They're like, Why do you have that dough here? Because she was fighting me and just pulling away from me every day as I would lead her up to milk. But Fortunately, Alpine showed on Thursday that year and every day she got a little better and a little better and come show day, she behaved really well. My sister showed her and she ended up first first utter 5-year-old Alpine at the National Show, her debut show. First time wow. off the farm.
0: That is a fun story and her name was
2: Oh, don't ask me that.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Renegade, right?
2: <laughs> That's right. Real renegade
1: oh my goodness
2: and what, she was, um, most of the week.
1: so i wanna I wanna piggyback off that story there. She caught your eye. What does it take to catch Craig Copeman's eye in his barn of three hundred?
2: Oh, I don't know. I'm always looking at the goats always <clears throat> every time I'm in the barn, I am looking at the goats. And it it drives my brother crazy sometimes because we'll be out there doing chores, hanging them, whatever, and all of a sudden I'll just stop and I'll look at a doe or I'll grab a doe quick to check who she is because she caught my eye. Now, why they catch my eye, I don't know. It's just something about the way they looked at a certain time, and it's if a doe catches my eye and I grab her and see who it is, and if it's the same doe multiple times, I'm like, there's a reason we're probably going to have to show you and at least see if somebody else thinks the same of you as I do, because there's a reason you keep catching my eye, but I can't put into words why they catch my eye because there's probably different reasons for every doe.
0: So Craig, you have to keep meticulous records.
2: Very much so.
0: (laughs) I mean, like every doe or every goat probably gets tattooed very early on. Right. And then registered or not, you've got to have all those records on, you know, not just the health related things and all that, but all those pedigree records back there. You don't use any sires that are not registered. You don't have commercial sires at all.
2: Correct. Okay. Every buck I have is registered and I keep, I try to keep a minimum of bucks. Um, Typically, (coughs) excuse me. I go into breeding season. I will have, eight or nine, maybe 10 at the absolute most of mature Alpine bucks to breed the roughly 200 Alpine mature does that I have to breed. And I will have two or three Sonnen bucks, mature sonen bucks to breed the roughly 100 head of Sonnen's that I need to breed. Um, if I'm going to have a buck, he needs to justify himself. And to me, that means breeding at least 20 does. If you're not breeding 15 to 20, 25 does a year, why do you have, why do I have you? I can spread, if you're only breeding eight or 10 does a year, I can spread those 10 does out. That's only one more doe for each of the other bucks. That's nothing to cover. So I want a buck that I'm gonna use. And it also helps prove them out because the more you breed each buck, the more kids you're gonna get and the more kids you get out of each buck, The more it proves them because it proves them out the more you get out of them you see see the consistency and see what he's really doing versus just getting a few kids from them or freshening a few daughters from each buck so that's why i do that and because everything is in the herd i don't differentiate commercial from show herd everything's registered or can be registered all the bucks have to be registered also
1: so, talking about those bucks there, how do you decide? Obviously, a goat catches your eye, or but how do you decide if you're going to keep a buck from that specific doe on your herd? You got 300 goats. It's a lot. Of, that's a lot of bucks to pick from. Obviously, not all of them deserve their nuts. But which one of those deserve to keep their nuts and stay at Pleasant Grove? Uh, there we go. <coughs>
2: There is a lot of things go into that decision on who I keep. Um, I sell a fair amount of bucks, show herds, registered herds, commercial herds. Some want them strictly for production, and they don't care about the registration papers, but they know they're buying a high-quality buck. Um, But my number one criteria, and I'll tell anybody this that contacts me about possibly buying a buck, If I'm not willing to use that buck myself, I'm not going to keep them and sell them to you to use, because that's basically my standard. So even if you don't, I've had some, a couple Amish guys call me up and say, I want a good buck. Who's your, who are your two best does production wise? I don't care about type. And even at that, I do care about type. And so If they don't meet my standards that I would use the buck, I'm not going to sell a buck out of that, no. So that's my number one criteria on keeping a buck. What I keep for myself to use, there's so many things go into it, and I spend all winter, probably all year, thinking about it and deciding, I mean, it's what do I need to improve generally in the herd? Production's important. They got to have enough production behind them. I want to stack the pedigrees type-wise, so I'm not gonna, probably not gonna keep a buck out of a excellent ninety doe that milks thirty five hundred pounds if her dam was an eighty three point doe and only milk two thousand or twenty five hundred because that's not stacked. The pedigree hasn't stacked itself, proven itself enough over generations. And I'm also looking at different things. I'm looking at casein now where I'm trying to get more. I want to produce more protein because we get paid a premium on protein. So if I can produce more protein, then I get paid more. So I'm looking at casein. I'm trying to bring more A and B casein alleles into the herd. So I'm looking at that. It's not, but there's so many factors go into it. So it's. It's hard and there's no set hard and fast rules to it, but I'm always constantly looking. And I think I've mentioned this to you before. Part of it is I let buyers help me decide by the most in-demand breedings I have. Sometimes I'll let them go and use something else because I have... I can come up with a list of probably 10 bucks I want to keep that'll be born each year. But I don't need to keep 10 for myself. So I will let somebody else decide who they want to buy out of them 10. And I'll take the four that are left after people buy. So in a way, I'm letting others help me, but they still have to meet my standards of what I'm looking for.
0: And then maybe down the road, you could, if those bucks turned out really great for them, you could get semen back or buy the buck back or... Whatever down the road, maybe.
2: Oh, absolutely! I'll tell you a little story. Um, Back in, I think it was about 2009 or 10, I had Tucson and Buck kids, and I was—they were—they had the same sire. I knew I was keeping a buck kid out of that sire, and I had two does, both really nice does, um, but I couldn't decide which buck I wanted. I had an Amish guy come, and he wanted to buy a buck. And I showed him the two dams. I said, I'm keeping one of these bucks, but I'll let you can pick. I said, I haven't been able to decide. He picked the one. I kept the other one. As luck would have it, he picked, he got the good one. I went down, I went down to see his herd and he had milk and yearling daughters out of that buck. And I went, I went, hello, I need to use that buck. So he actually let me lease him back. I leased him back that fall and I had him on the farm for like, 10 days and I used him and got the kids. I really liked the kids and I actually asked him and the following fall too, because I liked the kids and now I seen yearlings and two-year-olds in his herd. And I loved how they were mature and I loved the udders on them. He let me use him again. So um, I used him again the next fall and he actually let me collect him. And the buck is, it's a son and buck named Pleasant Grove, the one I got. Oh. Now, if that name rings a bell, it's because he was the 2013 and the 2017 National Premier Sire at the National Show. Pretty illustrious buck. buck, yeah. Wow. I owned on paper, but I technically never owned <laughs> because <laughs> he didn't want the registration papers. But when I used him, obviously he had to be registered, so I registered him. And because he was, he didn't want the registration papers and was never going to register kids out of them. I just registered them, and the paper stayed in my name. And I used that buck for two years live, and I've used him AI since and had a lot of luck with him. And like I said, he is national premier sire twice, four years apart. So it shows, yeah, I'll sell good ones, but I can also use them back.
0: So think you you mentioned your uh, huge number of yearlings do you is it your preference always to freshen those as yearlings if you can
2: yes absolutely um I don't like dry yearlings um coming from a commercial standpoint and milk milk sales being my primary source of income dry yearlings are they're a money pit they're a money loss because that's a whole extra year of feed, which means several hundred dollars more that you're sticking in them and feed with no return. And now, so, and you lost a whole lactation. So I don't like dry yearlings at all. If I can help it, I don't have dry yearlings, but with the large number I have, um, depending on the year, I'll keep 60 to 100 kids uh, to keep his replacements and freshen his yearlings. I decide how many based on what I think I'm going to be calling. how old their herd's getting. Um, this year I've got about 80 head of replacements that I'm planning on kidding in. But we fresh, we breed them, pen breed them, so it's bucks turned in with them, groups. I know who the, all the does are in the buck that's in with them, so I still know pedigrees. But I don't have breeding dates on them or any anything. So they get a limited amount of time that they can get bred. And then I freshen them as yearlings. Anything that doesn't freshen, I get real hard on them, whether or not I'm going to keep them. Because I don't want dry yearlings. They're expensive to keep around. And like I said, in my situation, they're a money coster. They're not a money maker. So I don't like dry yearlings and I may be a hypocrite (laughs) because I've had some, and I had a dry yearling in the spotlight sale this year, and I've showed a couple of dry yearlings the last four years. I think I showed a dry yearling every year the last four years. But if I get, say, I end up with six dry yearlings after I get done kidding, I'll go through those dry yearlings, and you have to be the top of the top, not just that you made the cut that I kept you last summer as a keeper kid, Now you got to be probably in the top 10% of the herd to be kept or else I'm going to, if I like you enough, type-wise, I might register you and sell you as a dry yearling to a show herd if somebody's looking or else I'll just, if they're, if I don't think they're good enough for that, I'll just straight up call them, take them to the sale barn and cut my losses. So I love
1: that. I love that. Take them to the sale barn. I mean that is the uh, that's the cold hard reality of having a commercial dairy.
0: It could be argued that's the cold
2: hard reality
0: of being a serious breeder as well.
2: Correct, definitely. I mean, Correct. I know there's people say they'll never never take a goat to the market or not take them to the sale barn, but it's it's a hard reality. They're still a production animal, and if they're not production producing milk, the other production for, sources meat. And that's what they go to when you run them through the sale barn. Most of these goats, 99% of these goats that go through the sale barn are going on a truck and going to a slaughter plant, being made into meat and sold sold for meat. They're not going back to the farm anywhere. They're not being abused at the sale barn. They're not going back to a farm where they may or may not be well taken care of. They're going to a slaughter plant, being humanely killed and feeding people. And that's how they're producing. They're a production animal. That's how they're producing. Preach. Preach. Uh,
1: <laughs> you know, there's there's uh, one of uh, a good friend of many people's uh, has taught me the famous saying, if you can't be a winner, you can always be dinner. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Ouch. I have not heard that before, but that's kind of cold too, Cameron. <laughs>
1: You can't be a winner; you can always be dinner. So, oh, man. Uh, on on that note here, I want to go back. You talked a little bit about your yearlings here. Let's come out of the the dinner. The dinner uh, can't be a winner; always be dinner. Saying there, let's talk about yearlings, and I want to you know kind of delve into that a little bit. There, looking at later into development, what signs are you looking for in your yearlings that are going to be first fresheners? to think, hey, that they're going to be on the right track, they're not going to be the Cole yearlings uh, of that group? Are there any, like, telltale signs of, hey, this was going to be a good trait, like I see this, they're definitely going to stay, or, hey, this is a bad trait, and I think they're going to have to go because I see this at, you know, 100 days pregnant?
2: No. um, I'll be honest with you. I keep my kids based on pedigree and – I don't really look at them. I don't evaluate my kids generally, and I don't evaluate them when they're eight months old, 10 months old, 12 months old. I don't start evaluating them until after they freshen. And I try really hard not to evaluate them until they're a month fresh. And I prefer actually to give them 60 days because kids go through so many changes. You can see a kid one month and he looks great. The dope kid looks great, and a month later, She's going through a phase and she looks like crap. So I don't evaluate kids really at all. I keep them based on pedigree. When they're fresh in his yearling, I'm not evaluating them at when they're 10 or 11 months old, when they're pregnant. I don't look at pre-fresh udders and evaluate that. None of that matters to me. Um, Get them fresh at least a month. I prefer 60 days. And then I start evaluating and making decisions on them whether I'm going to register them, whether I think they'll make the show string or not. And one of the, I think one of the cool things is I'm sort of doing it anonymously when I'm evaluating my yearlings because I don't know who everybody is. I got to check the tattoo to know who these coming yearlings are because they've all just been kids and I got to check tattoos to know who's who. So when they freshen, I don't know who they are. I don't know their pedigrees. So I'm, I can evaluate them honestly and kind of anonymously without any of that bias. Well, she's out of this box. She she should be this. And, you know, that can kind of maybe skew your evaluation of her. For the most part, it's kind of anonymous. And I'm evaluating them without knowing who they are. And then I'll make my list. And I actually, I try to go through them. And once I get them all fresh, then I will pick a night. And I'll go through the barn and I will, by this point, <coughs> usually once everything's fresh, we separate out the yearlings and put them all in their own yard, the milking yearlings in their own yard. So when I milk, a whole set is all milking yearlings. So I will pick a night and I'll just go through the milking and yearlings and I'll look at those does and I'll kind of, I'll make the list, I'll go up front and I'll write down all the tag numbers and then I'll walk behind them and I'll kind of make a decision on them. Do I think this dough is hot? Not too many of them hit that criteria early on, but some do. Do I think you're a show prospect? Do I think you have potential? Do I think, nah, I don't really care for you? And and then I do that, I'll go, I'll wait about three weeks later. I'll come back and I'll do that again. And then about three weeks later, I'll do that again. And then I I put all that in my computer, and then I have I have my list. And if there if there's a dough that I see she made the hot list or she made the show list all three times, she's getting registered right now and she's gonna be in the show string. And I also look as there, and I see it lots that there's does, okay, there's some potential error, but the third time you evaluate them, I'm like, definite show doe. So you see that change in them, but that's kind of how I evaluate the yearlings. And a lot of it is, I'm looking at udders and feet and not feet legs, legs set on them because we milk from behind. So I'm not seeing the bodies for the most part other than how much are they starting to fill out maybe some depth of body, but I'm not seeing them from the front how they walk or anything. It's a lot of my evaluation is on the udders on the rear leg set and rumps too. So, but that's kind of how I evaluate them and pick out my yearlings. Um, I don't cull a lot of yearlings because it's kind of a kind of a grace year. I want them fresh and milking. As long as they're making milk and they are above break-even, I will give them a chance. Um, but I rarely call a yearling before 30 days old, and I would say probably 80 to 90 percent of the yearlings I freshen will stay all year. And get freshened back again. If you if you may, if a yearling makes it to ninety days, you are probably going to get freshened again as a two year old. If you don't start <clears throat> producing really well as a two year old, that's where I call hardest is probably in my two year olds.
1: So two two things here. One, do you sell tickets to the yearling evaluation? And if you do, where can I buy one?
2: No. I don't even tell anybody I'm going to do it. I just randomly decide one night. Tonight's going to take a while to milk. I'm going to evaluate my yearlings. So nobody knows. I don't even know it until I walk in the barn that night.
0: Does your Does your brother um, Does he kind of give you free reign to make the, make that decision on the the show show string and register group, or do you guys have to banter back and forth on some of them?
2: No, I have free reign on that. Um, He's not into registered animals or showing at all. It's strictly to him. All 300 head are commercial does. And that's what he looks at. He has no desire to register them, market any genetics, do any showing or anything. So that is all on me. That's good and bad then. Now, where we do get into some bantering is when a doe, he thinks she needs to be culled, and I still see the genetic potential in her, but she's maybe barely break even on production. And if she wasn't a top-end show doe or a marketable genetics, I would definitely be culling her. And that's where we get into the back and forth because he wants to cull her. The commercial part of me says, yes, she needs to be called. The registered part of me says, no, you can market those genetics yet. So that's where we get into the back and forth. And we discuss it. Got to have good communication. And we go back and forth and come to a conclusion.
1: Gotcha. I want to continue to go down this path here because I find this fascinating. So a good chunk of your uh, yearlings will survive the, the first cut, the yearling cut. Then you get to your two year old year, and this is where you cut harder. Where do you take that so let's just say you have a hundred yearlings, you have a hundred kids fresh out, you have ninety two year olds now. How much do you thin those two year olds down
2: now? Um I'll probably cut twenty to thirty percent of them cause in preparation for doing this, I kind of I went through and I did a breakdown of my herd based on how many I had each age bracket in 2023 and when breeding season came so basically the first of september i had 88 head of milk and yearlings and i only had 56 head of two-year-olds okay. and i want to say i had like 80 milk and yearlings in 2022 so out of them 75 to 80 milk and yearlings only 56 made the cut as two-year-olds so
0: that's pretty half, steep.
2: 20 to 30 percent of yeah. two year olds don't make the cut. And a lot of that's on production.
1: And as you go from two to three, what's the I'm curious now? Let's can I want to continue this because I'm super curious. Two to three, where do those numbers go for that?
2: Um by that point, basically the reason you would get cold is for illness such as mastitis or something, or not breeding back and being an average producer um typically i don't call a lot of three and up unless they have some issue such as health problem won't breed back etc so like go back to my numbers last fall of how what i had come breeding season there was 56 two-year-olds There was 49 three-year-olds and 48 four-year-olds. So pretty steady numbers in that prime age bracket of two, three, and four-year-olds. The numbers stayed pretty much the same. And there's always the little bit of difference is probably you have attrition from kidding. You have a bad kidding, rough kidding, and a doe needs to be cold. Or rough kidding and she dies. It happens. So that's... That's probably, that's the other way that I can lose a doe from, a doe leaves the herd age, after age two, you know, when they're three, four, or five, is a hard kidding or an injury, something like that, or dies as a result of kidding. So, but yeah, like I said, the biggest, the hardest call is as two-year-olds.
0: So, Craig, over the years, uh, you are a you are a frequent utilizer of ADGA programs like um, DHIR. Excuse me, DHIR and linear appraisal. Over the years that you have participated in linear appraisal, um, I'm guessing that you've seen like the improvement in your scores continue, and probably have had a rougher time making those cuts, right? Because you know, over time, you're seeing the quality of your herd increase, right?
2: Yes. It gets harder all the time. And it's, it's a good problem to have, but it gets harder all the time. And it's where I actually see the hardest part for me is in deciding my keeper kids. Because I'm to the point now, I've been doing this long for so long, I really got the milk and herd where I like it. There's a lot of consistency, a lot of animals, depth in the herd, depth of consistency. Trying to pick my keeper kids is, I can oftentimes come up with a list. My keeper kid list is often 120, 130, even 140 head, and I can't keep that many every year. So that's where it gets really hard is deciding who I'm going to keep and who's going to get sold, and my kids. Most of them that aren't sold as registered kids. I have kids get ordered and sold that way, but what's not sold that way, and I'm not keeping as replacements for myself, get sold through a production sale. And I sell a fair amount of kids through production sale that I would prefer to keep myself, but I can't. So, but that's where the hardest part is on deciding who to keep and who not to keep. Um, but in the milkers, like I said, age two is the hardest cut and where the most calling happens. If you get to three and older, then it's, it becomes the other things, health problem, rough kidding, age, breeding problems is why you're going to leave the herd. And it's there's a lot of consistency in the herd. So it's. So
1: some of my last, my last question here is. Can you catch all of your goats in the barn?
2: I can catch them. Nobody's got the crazy gene. I don't have crazy goats. But I will say, how do I catch them? Some I can walk up, walk in the pen, walk up and grab their collar. Piece of cake. Others I may have to sort of sneak up on and grab their collar. Others I may have to corner. But I can catch them all. (laughs) Like like a true Pokemon master,
0: Craig, catch them all. Okay, so here's my last question for you, Craig. Do you have favorites in your herd?
2: I try not to, but anybody that's ever had goats has had favorites. So so, t- w- would you tell us who? Don't our- go there. Don't go there. Don't <laughs> ask it.
0: Oh oh Wait, the one oh. question that we cannot touch okay I love that. Does your you can't brother, ask does your, who
2: the favorite is does your,
0: favorite? does your brother have
1: a favorite what's that does your brother have a favorite
2: no I don't think so <laughs> he's got a couple that he would say I hate that goat why do we still have her but he don't have favorites. <laughs>
0: That's his call list goat, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, goodness. Craig, this is just, it's always such a delight. And uh, I, I'm i probably going to be joined by some of our viewers that say that we will say a little prayer for you that last week or so of January that that uh, you are able to get some sleep and that every kidding is, is nice and easy and, and it goes as smoothly as it possibly can.
2: I will take all the prayers I can get, and I will take any Mountain Dew or any GoFundMe that somebody wants to send. I will take all that. But
1: <laughs> oh, oh wait, have, <laughs> oh, wait, I do have another question.
2: I know how to make it work.
1: Oh, wait, I do have another question. Do you have a preferred lunch meat for
2: your lunch meat sandwiches that you have at chose? I like ham and turkey. Give me some ham cold cuts, turkey cold cuts, slice of cheese. And a loaf of bread and i can I can survive on that for quite a while.
1: I was talking to your uh i call I'll call her your intern that went to the national show with you, and she had said she had never had that many turkey cold cuts in one week.
0: She survived she did fine, right she was great she was awesome.
2: She was extremely good help. I have no complaints about that at all. I have plans to take her to nationals again
0: oh. She always had a smile on her face. Uh, awesome. Well, Craig, can you remind the listeners
1: where to find information about uh, your herd of goats and where they can see all of your goats on the internet?
2: Yes. Um, Facebook is pretty much my extent of the internet. Um, I have my own profile, Craig Coltman, but I basically don't do that. I only have that profile so I can run the business page. Um, My business page is Pleasant Grove Dairy Goats. Um, I post occasionally throughout the summer, show season and such. And then through the winter, I post a lot. Um, I'm sure you've seen it and a lot of people have seen it. But usually December and January, during the down months, I do what I call a daily feature. And I put that on every day. And I do that right up until the first go kids. And then I kind of stop because I am swamped with kids, but that's where you can find me on Facebook and the daily features, you can search the hashtag daily feature and see going back multiple years. That's probably the best way to find out dig deep into my herd. And then I also do a sales brochure every year, herd brochure. I typically send it out the end of November. I've sent out a lot this year. If there's anybody that wants a copy and hasn't gotten one yet, send me a message through Facebook, whether it's my Craig Coltman profile or through the Pleasant Grove Dairy Goats Facebook page. Send me a message and I can send you a copy of the brochure back through that as a message also.
0: Just want to say that's one of my favorite reading things to get um, on Dairy Goats every year. It's it's just a delight to look at his beautiful, well-laid-out sales brochures on both of his breeds. They're very cool. My wife and I put it up on the
1: uh, 60-inch TV in our living room, and we went through it one Friday night. People have called
2: us party people on Fridays. (laughs) Well, thank you, Laura, for the kind words. Cameron, I think you're crazy to put it up on a 60-inch TV to look through it. Or maybe your eyesight's just getting bad. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Sounds like a great date night I actually I think that'd be a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> listeners as always we appreciate your feedback appreciate um you spending time with us and uh, we are excited about uh, what's down the pike we've got some fun some fun things planned and uh, we really appreciate your uh ideas and thoughts and if there's something you'd like us to cover that we haven't covered for a bit let us know
1: yes uh be looking out for a facebook poll to come out after this episode drops so be on the lookout for that and as always listeners have a great week thanks for being part of goat gab